Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Great to have you here this morning. Uh, Welcome to those of you who are here on site and to those of you watching online. We welcome you online as well. My name is Lewis. I'm the lead pastor here at City Awakening. At this time, we can go ahead and dismiss our children to Children's Church. If you didn't get a chance to check your child in, you can um, see our children's ministry leaders in the back, and they would be more than happy to assist you with that. Uh, today we are actually continuing the teaching series that we've been doing called Outward, and this is actually going to be the last week in that series. So it was just a short four-week series where we have been talking about developing a culture of generosity. Uh, we were taking a short break from the teaching series that we've been doing throughout the year called The Story, where we've been going through the biblical narrative from the beginning in Genesis 1 to the last amen in Revelation. And so next week we're going to go back to the story series, and we're going to finish out the year by finishing out the rest of the biblical narrative. All right, so that'll be next week, but today is the last week in our, in our Outward series where we're talking about the topic of generosity, and we have intentionally refrained from talking about generosity when it comes to our wealth. Why? Is it because we're afraid of that? No, we're not afraid of that. One of the things that we say is that we're a place where both skeptics and believers can seek truth and find joy in community, and we believe that that truth and that joy is found in Jesus, which means if we're going to be that kind of church, we're not afraid of any tough questions that come our way. We're not afraid to hit any kind of topic. We will address those topics because we'd rather address them here within the context of of our church, our local church, than rather have you try to find answers to those questions outside the church. We'd rather deal with them here. So we're not afraid of tough questions. So why have we refrained from talking about generosity with our wealth? Well, it's because we wanted you to be able to see that a holistic biblical view understanding of generosity entails so much more than the use of our wealth. It entails living a lifestyle of generosity. And so we wanted you to see that. And so we've talked about different areas of generosity when it comes to things like generosity in our relationships, generosity when it comes to the use of our hospitality, generosity when it comes to forgiveness, being generous with our forgiveness towards others. We've even talked about generosity when it comes to serving others, generosity when it comes to using whatever positions, whatever roles you have in your family, in your work, in your city, your power and influence that you have based upon the positions that you're in, using your position and your power to be able to help care for other people, to use that influence to be able to help care for the needs of other people. So we have talked about generosity in so many different areas of our lives because we wanted you to see that generosity entails more than writing big checks or small checks. It entails more than the use of our wealth. It entails using, um, living a lifestyle of generosity. But you cannot live a generous lifestyle without also being generous with your wealth. Okay? You can't. You can't live a generous lifestyle. You can't be a generous person if you're also not going to be generous with your wealth. There's no such thing as a greedy, generous person, right? It's an oxymoron. You can't be a greedy, generous person. It's not possible. And so if you're truly a generous person, then you are also going to be generous with the use of your wealth. And so we have to talk about generosity when it comes to the use of our wealth because it's a part of what it means to be a generous person. And so today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about generosity with the use of our wealth. Now, if you're a skeptic, you know, and you're you know, kind of skeptic towards pastors talking about generosity with our wealth, then listen, give, to, give somewhere else. I want you to give to us some other place, some other church other than this church. And I mean that when I say that. 
Okay, I want you to give somewhere else. Why? Because we treasure your heart more than your wallet. We treasure your heart more than the treasure that you have in your pockets. And so we would rather you give, if that's a stumbling block for you, we'd rather you give to some other church or some other place so that you don't miss what Jesus is going to teach all of us, skeptics and believers alike, what he's going to teach all of us when it comes to generosity with our wealth. Because the fact still remains, and this is the fact, that you cannot be a generous person if you aren't being generous with your wealth. So we have to address it whether you give to this church or you not, or, or don't, okay? And so that's what we're going to talk about. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them over to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say about generosity with our wealth. If you're new to your Bible, just open it up to the middle, keep turning to the right, you'll find the, the gospel of Luke there. We'll be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. And the title of today's message, for those of you taking notes, is Generosity with Wealth, and this is the big idea of the message. Generosity entails using your wealth beyond yourself. Generosity entails using your wealth beyond yourself. Let me give you a little bit of context here. Um, In the text leading up to Luke 16, we're in Luke chapter 15, and what's happening in Luke chapter 15 is there's some Jewish religious leaders who are really uh, just grumbling about Jesus. They're complaining about Jesus welcoming um, sinners. And so Jesus tells them a series of parables, which are short stories, to teach a, a lesson. Now, parables, whenever you see the word parable in the Bible, that should be a cue for you that, hey, we're not supposed to take all these things, every little detail of this literally. What we are supposed to take literal is the one to two truths that that story is teaching. That's what you take literal. So the details of it isn't what's meant to be taken literal. It's the one to two truths that the story's teaching. Those are, that's what we have to draw out. Well, in chapter 16, Jesus starts teaching another parable, only this time he's speaking specifically to believers, specifically to his disciples, his followers, while also keeping in mind, we actually won't get to 14. You can read verse 14 on your own, but you'll see that the Pharisees are included in, in this, okay? But they're a secondary audience. Jesus is primarily, they're listening in, but Jesus is primarily speaking to his believers, his followers, So this is a parable that has to do primarily with with wealth and how he wants his believers, his followers, his disciples to use their wealth. In this, I think both skeptics and believers, because remember the Pharisees are in the background as well, so I think both skeptics and believers, we're going to learn from Jesus three things that he tells us we should value when it comes to our wealth. Okay. Again, for those of you taking notes, he's going to teach us that when it comes to our wealth, we should value, number one, stewardship over ownership. This will make sense to you as we go. Stewardship over ownership. Number two, the, um, the eternal over the temporal. So we should value eternity over the temporary. And then number three, friends over finances, okay? Or friendships, people over profit or people over finances, friends over finances, okay? Those are the three things he's gonna teach us to value in this parable. So let's check it out. Here we go. Luke chapter 16, verses one to 13 states this. Now he said to his disciples, his followers, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. All right, so what we're dealing with here is a rich man who has a manager that's overseeing all of his possessions. Now, a manager back then uh, would have been kind of like today, they would have been like the COO and the CFO combined, all right? meaning they would have been the person who's overseeing the daily operations and uh, the operational side of it, so daily operational decisions and daily financial decisions on the company or the person that hired them. 
So in this case, uh, this manager, he is the COO and the CFO of this rich man's, all his accounts, right? He is the guy who's responsible for the daily operations and financial decisions that are being made on this rich man's um, investments, on all of his businesses, on all of his um, savings accounts that he has, on his entire estate. Everything that this, all his possessions, he's in charge of over that. This is how this worked back then. Okay, so back then a manager, they would have not only had access to all of the um, financial things, all the wealth, all the investments and businesses and all that, they would have also had the very authority to be able to invest the rich person's wealth however they felt like it was needed, however they want it. So in other words, this manager in the text, any financial decision that he is making is just as binding as if the rich man were there making those decisions for himself in person. That's how this worked back then. What does Jesus tell us? He tells us that, that this guy's not doing his job as a manager. Right? He's not doing his job. He's not investing the rich man's wealth in a good way like he should. And so what's happening? He's having to give an account for his management. He's basically being audited. Right? He's being audited, which every company, every business, and even every church should, should be getting audited, right? We should have audits being done so that we keep an honest and accurate record of where the money's going, where the finances are going. And when I was an atheist, I, I used to um, be a massive skeptic, um, uh, you know, for church. Like, I, I was very skeptical of churches when it came to, you know, um, churches and money. I mean, very skeptical of it. Uh, in fact, you know, I mean, we're not oblivious to the reality that there's a ton of people in our city who are skeptical of churches and, and finances. Maybe, maybe some of you are as well. So this is why here at City Awakening, one of the things that we do is, is we make sure that we have external people, we have external accountants who are managing our accounts, who are managing the bookkeeping and the church finances here. We have not only internal accountability, but we want that added accountability. We want that extra accountability, having an extra, you know, external accountant who's not connected to the church from a personal standpoint to be able to have that extra accountability to reduce skepticism, but also to hold us accountable to making sure that we're managing the finances well in an accurate and honest way. Okay, so that's important to us. This guy in the text, Jesus says he's not doing his job. Something's off, something's not right. He's doing something wrong. And so he's being audited. And the rich man ends up firing him. Verse 3. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. So the guy loses his job, right? He gets fired from his job. And he starts, like, he starts stressing out. He starts wondering, you know, man, you know, how am I going to survive? How am I going to make ends meet? If you've ever been fired from your job before, or maybe, you know, you resigned from your job before, you know how scary that can be, especially if you have to provide for a family. I mean, you start, you start getting scared, right? You start wondering, you know, how am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to 
keep the lights on? How, how am I going to put food on my table? How am I going to provide for, for you, uh, you know, my family, and, and even myself? It can be a scary, very scary time, and you start freaking out, like the, the manager in the text. In fact, um, you know, this happened to me one time where I felt the Lord actually um, calling me to leave a thriving um, ministry where things were, were going really well. And I remember the Lord calling me to leave that ministry. And I was like, no, I don't want to leave because I love it here and I love what's going on. No, no, you're, you're going to leave. And I had to step out on faith. And for two months, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea. I mean, I'm sitting there sending out resumes to like, you know, Chick-fil-A. I'm sending out, you know, wanted, I was thinking, I was, well, maybe I'll be a Chick-fil-A owner. Or start, you know, I, I was actually sending away to be a chaplain in the, maybe the military, you know. And my wife's like, oh, you're not traveling that much, right? And so I was like, okay, the Lord closed that door real quick, right? I mean, I'm sending these different things, like I'm sending these different resumes. Out to do it. And, and then all of a sudden, I just had, you know, what I call a freak-out session. I mean, I was scared, scared to death. I mean, there was a moment when I was feeling the weight of all this, kind of like this. I mean, I was feeling the weight of my, my family, looking at my wife, looking at my kids in the eyes. And I remember she, she got a little smile because she knows she preached to me one of the best stewardship sermons that I've ever heard in my life. Because I was, I was scared. And there was a moment when I was like, Andrea, I was like, we... We got to sell everything. We got to sell. We got to sell the TV. We got to cut cable. We got to get rid of our cell phones. We got to start selling the chairs. You know, we, we sell the dog. Well, you know, maybe we don't sell the dog. You know, we got to keep. He's part of the family too, right? And I was just freaking out. She said, "No, no, wait a minute." She's like, "Hey, look at me." She's like, "Look at me in my eyes." She's like, "You?" She's like, "You're, you know, me and the kids. We're not yours. We're the Lord's. You're just a steward, so steward." And then she walked away. I mean, pointing to my, "You're just a steward, so steward." Pointing, I was like, "Ooh, girl." I was like. Man, that was my wake-up call, right? Now, she was being loving to me in that moment. She was waking me up from that reality because I was owning so much of it. And that was the day that I re- released the Lord, um, released my family into the Lord's hands and my future into the Lord's hands. And shortly after that, the Lord had called me to be a part of a larger church up in North Carolina, which then transitioned into the Lord calling me to plant a church here in East Orlando called City Awakening. Okay. It was a step of faith, but it was scary. Hey, we can praise God for it, okay? But that's not just me. I mean, there's a lot of people, even some people in this church here, who walked with me through those times of discernment, and they know. But it was a scary time. If you have ever lost your job, if you've ever stepped out on faith and left the ministry or stepped out on faith and resigned from a job to go and pursue something else that you weren't even certain maybe what the Lord was asking you to do next, it is scary. And we can start freaking out like the manager is in the text. Now, what does this manager do? Jesus says that the manager realizes that, okay, there's a moment here. I've got a little bit of time here while I'm being audited. And during that time, I can go, and this is my plan. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go and give discounts on the debts that the people are owing, and, and so that maybe they will remember me when I'm in trouble, and, and they will welcome me into their homes, the text says. So what's he do? He basically goes, gives them discounts, and then gives them paid in full receipts for those, paid in full invoices for those discounts. And so this is an opportunity for him to say, hey, hey guys, you, you remember that time when I helped you out? You remember that time when you were hurting and you were struggling to pay your debt, and, and I gave you the discount, and then I, gave, you know, I wiped away your invoice? Hey, I could use your help right now because I'm in a tough situation right now, and I need your help. Can you help me out? That's what he's hoping to do with this. The text says that he was giving some people a 50% off discount on their debt. How many of y'all would like that? Amen, right? I would love that. Would that make you happy? Yeah, if you're, 
Imagine the mortgage company coming up and saying, you know, we just want, you know we're going to give you 50% off of your, your mortgage. <laughs> Not happening, right? Make you happy. Some scholars say that, that, that these amounts that he discounted was as high as up to about $150,000 worth of debt that he wiped out in comparison to what it might be today. He's doing this because he wants these people to remember him, to give him financial security in the future for when he's going to be in a time of need. Verse 8, and this is where the parable gets a lot of confusing, where there's a lot of debate with scholars. Verse 8, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. It's confusing, is it not? I mean, the debate that people have is like, wait, really? Like, why is he praising this manager for that? Like, I mean, we would think that he would be upset over that, right? That he'd be furious over that. I mean, this guy wiped out $150,000 worth of his debt. You would think that he's going to be furious about that. But the debate is, as scholars say, that actually there could be numerous reasons why the rich guy is praising this, this manager for this. You know, we don't know the exact reason, but here's some of the, some of the debates that they have. You know, one of, you know, some scholars, they'll say, well, it's because of the sudden um, increase in cash flow that this now brought to, to the rich man, right? So the, the guy wasn't doing his job, but now he's doing his job. He's collecting his debt, and the rich man is happy because he has this sudden increase in, clash, in cash flow that comes in, an income that comes in, okay? So some believe that. Other scholars, they'll say that, well, no, maybe it's not that. It could possibly be that the manager was charging people higher interest rates on their debt than what was the norm there to be able to collect a greater commission check. So in other words, if the norm was about a 10% um, rate on on the debt, then he was doing 15% and then pocketing the extra 5%. Remember, he had the power and the authority to do this. And he was taking the extra 5% for himself to write himself a greater commission check. Well, why would the rich man care about that? Because that affects his reputation in the community. The higher interest rates would have given him a poor reputation in the community. They would have considered him a dishonest business owner who is taking advantage of people with these high interest rates, taking advantage of the poor. So it would have given him a bad reputation. So now when this manager goes back and actually makes it all right, What this does is the people are happy and this starts to restore the rich man's reputation, hence why he actually praises the manager for it. There's all kinds of reasons that scholars debate over as to why this guy is praising. The point of this parable isn't for us to try and figure out why the rich man is praising this manager for doing this. Instead, the point of this parable that Jesus is teaching us, he's teaching us the importance of stewardship. He's teaching us to be good stewards with the resources and the wealth that he has given us. See, if you think about the parable, the way it starts, right? The parable starts off with this guy being a dishonest steward. He, he's using the wealth of the rich man in, in bad ways, in ways that aren't good. And so the rich man ends up firing him. He's not happy about it. But now he ends up being a good steward. He's using the, the wealth in a way that the, man, that the rich man is happy about. And the rich man starts to praise him for it. This is a parable where Jesus, one of the things that Jesus, one of his points that Jesus is teaching us is the importance of good stewardship. He's teaching us when it comes to our wealth, we should, number one, value stewardship over ownership. Okay, we should value stewardship over ownership. In fact, if you study the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, that this text was written in, the Greek word for manager means steward. It translates as steward. In fact, some of your Bibles might actually say steward. 
Okay? It's because this is a parable that is focused on stewardship, and what Jesus is teaching us is the importance of being good stewards with the wealth and the resources that he has given us. Now, this is the difference between a steward and an owner. A steward is somebody who realizes that all the wealth that they have, the money, the resources, the, the possessions, all the wealth that we have isn't our own. Okay, that's, that's what a steward, that's a, how a steward thinks. An owner, an owner has the mindset of, what are you talking about? What do you mean it's not mine? Of course it's mine. I worked hard for it. I earned it. So it's my wealth and I get to keep it and I get to do whatever I want with it. Jesus says, no, it isn't. No, it isn't your wealth. It's my wealth. And I want you to be a good steward of it. That's what Jesus is saying here. I mean, think about it for a second. You did absolutely nothing to create the air that you are breathing to be able to do the work that you're doing and earn the wealth that you have. You did absolutely nothing to create the skills, talents, and abilities that you have to be able to do the work you're doing to be able to earn the wealth that you're, you, you, you've had now. If you're if you're intellectual, if you're analytical, if you're mathematical, if you are mechanically minded, medically minded, if you are artistic or even athletic, you did this much, zero, to create that DNA in your body that has given you those abilities to do those things. Now, you may have improved those things. You may have improved your abilities with furthering your education, furthering your, your training, which is what? Good stewardship right? That is excellent stewardship of the abilities that you have been given, the God-gifted abilities that you've been given. We should be taking our abilities that we have, the gifts that we have, furthering our education, furthering our training, furthering our skills to be able to utilize those the best we possibly can, okay? But you did nothing in your mother's womb to be able to create the genetic abilities that you have. You had zero say in that. The air, the the skills, the talents, the abilities are all gifts that God has given you to be able to earn wealth in this world and to be able to utilize those abilities and that wealth to be good stewards of those gifts that he has given you. See, what Jesus is wanting us to wrestle with in this parable is the question of, do you view yourself as a steward or do you view yourself as an owner? Are you a good steward or are you a bad steward? Are you a good steward of his wealth, the wealth that he has given you? Or are you being a poor steward with the wealth he's given you? And here's something else that, that's a question for us to wrestle with. What would you change in your budget if Jesus set your budget? What would you change in your budget? What would you adjust in your budget if Jesus set your budget? We don't always think like that. You know, my wife and I, we made it a habit. You know, maybe we need to do it monthly. I don't know. Um, um, we made it a habit that every year we sit down and we look at our budget and we talk about it again and we say, Lord, how do you want us to use, use our budget? How mu- and it, this is yours. How, how much do you want us to give to the church? How much do you want us to give to our needs? How much do you want us to give to, you know, fun, relaxation, recreation? You know, Lord's given us Sabbath, you know, rest, you know, celebrate, recreate. If Jesus were to set your budget, what would it, how would it look? Would it change? Would, it, would there be some things that you did? Yeah, absolutely. I think there would still, still be, even though we addressed that question, I think there would still be some things in our life. 
If you consider yourself a steward, then let Jesus do an audit on your budget. If you believe Jesus is true, if you value stewardship over ownership, then let Jesus do an audit on your budget this week. Let Jesus set your budget, okay? Jesus is teaching us to value stewardship over ownership. Verse 9, Jesus said, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Notice he doesn't say if it fails, but when it fails. He doesn't say if your wealth fails, he says when your wealth fails, which is the second thing he's teaching us when it comes to our wealth. He's teaching us when it comes to our wealth, we need to value, number one, stewardship over ownership, and then number two, we need to value the eternal over the temporal. Okay, we need to value eternity over the, the temporary. You know, Jesus is, is teaching us that your wealth will fail. Your, your money will eventually fail you. You know, eventually, uh, inflation's going to happen, gas prices are going to go up, food prices are going to go up, insurance is going to go up, everything's going to go up, except it doesn't seem like your salary ever goes up, right? Or if it does, it really doesn't even go up because everything else has gone up, right? So it's really just kind of leveled out. Eventually, that's going to happen. Eventually, the economy is going to crash, and you're, or, or you're going to crash, and you're going to end up six feet under in the ground where you can't take any of it with you anyways, See, some of us are working so hard for our wealth. We're so, working so hard to, to gain money, to gain these riches, to gain all this wealth, only to run straight into a tombstone. It's like run, 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 run. Work, 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 work. Save, 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 save. Tombstone. Can't even bring any of it with us anyways. Eventually, the economy will crash or will crash. We'll end up six feet under. Can't bring any of it with us. Our wealth will fail us. If you study history... Anybody loves history? If you ever study history, one of the things that you'll see in history is that every great empire eventually collapses. It eventually fails, like Jesus says. I did a study this past week on some of the greatest empires in history. And I don't have the top eight list, but some of them, you know, is like, you know the Persian Empire, the Mongolian Empire. And the Roman Empire was great in its own way. The, the, the British Empire... These were some of the greatest empires in history. They aren't great anymore. How many people are talking about the Persian Empire now that, like, you know, hey, the Persian Empire is ruling the world right now, right? They're a great empire now. No, they're a footnote in history now. Big footnote in history, but they're not the greatest empire anymore. Why? Because eventually their wealth, their economy, their empire failed, like Jesus said it would. As Americans, we got some swag sometimes, don't we? Americans, we can sometimes be very arrogant, especially when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world. Listen, I'm happy to be in this country. I'm glad to be an American. I am. I'm thankful. The Lord's blessed us with a lot of resources, and we should be generous with those resources. But I can tell you, we can sometimes be very arrogant. And we can sometimes, in our arrogance, think that this American empire that we have is going to last forever. No, it won't. There will come a time when this American empire that we know right now will eventually collapse and fail, just like all the other empires in history. In fact, some people are saying that it's already happening. We're already on the decline. Listen, everything that isn't eternal has an expiration date on it. Everything that isn't eternal has an expiration date on it. Jesus is telling us in this parable, another one of his points is, is that 
We need to put our hope not in any other empire or kingdom in this world. We need to put our hope in him and his eternal kingdom. Okay? Don't put your hope in the Biden kingdom. Don't put your hope in the Trump kingdom. Am I hitting some nerves now? I think I am. Listen, the Lord's given me a responsibility to preach the truth of his word, not to try and appease you and tickle your ears. Too many Christians are putting hope in the Biden administration, in the Trump administration, the Democratic administration, the Republican administration, and all of those have an expiration date on them. They are going to eventually fail. We have to have a greater hope than that. Otherwise, every election, your heart is going to be shattered and devastated. There is a greater kingdom and a greater God and a greater president, and his name's Jesus. And he has an eternal kingdom that he's building. He's saying, put our hope in him and his eternal kingdom. I'm totally going to be going over time right now. Zach, we're going to have to figure something out. Jesus is one. This is the point that Jesus is making at this point in the prayer. He's saying, hey, I want you to be good stewards of the resources that I'm getting. I want, I want you to invest in eternal things, not temporary things. Why? Because if you don't do that, the wealth and the sandcastle kingdom, temporary sandcastle kingdom that you're building, it's going to eventually wash away like sandcastles on a seashore. It's going to fail you. So we, we need to value the eternal over the temporal. Again, verse 9, Jesus said, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Okay, so here's what Jesus is saying now. He's teaching us a third thing here. He's teaching us to value friendships over our finances. All right, first he tells us to value stewardship over ownership and then it's value the eternal over the temporal. Now he's telling us to value friendships over our finances. Think about what this guy could have done, right? What could he have done? This guy could have taken all the people's money and he could have ran with it, right? And if he ran, it would have given him a good short-term security blanket for his life. He could have taken all that $150,000 plus, he could have taken and ran with it, which would have, which would have been a deficit to the rich man, right? It would have hurt the rich man, but it also would have hurt those people who owed that debt. Because maybe he didn't give them the invoices, showing them paid in full. Maybe the rich man didn't care about the invoices. He says, no, uh-uh, you're still going to pay me that debt because I didn't get that money. You say you paid them. How do I know you paid them, right? And so now those, poor, those people are now going to be having to pay over the debt amount again. This guy could have done that. He could have took all the debt and ran with it. But instead of seeking that short-term personal gain for himself, he does the right thing and he invests in something that is long-term, which is friendships, okay? He invests in people. He invests in friendships. The point that Jesus is making here at this point in the parable is that we should be investing, be good stewards, invest in in long-term relationships, invest in in building his eternal kingdom, leading people to him to help build eternal friendships, with him. So we need to be doing that. We need to be investing in, in building people, in building friendships, building relationships with people. You invest in all these other things, that's going to fail you. Friendships are the things that matter most. And here's how I know why you and I both believe that. This is, see, see, this is something we can back. This is something we can invest in. And here's, here's why I say that. 
Because every single one of us in here, skeptic or believer, we have a desire to hold on to relationships. We want our relationships to last. Doesn't matter if you're a skeptic or believer. We all, we all, I mean, I've done enough funerals to see skeptics and believers weeping at a, at a funeral. The reason we weep at a grave is because we all want to cling to the relationships that we have. We want to cling to the very people that we love. We want those relationships to last beyond the grave. Jesus is saying if we lead people to him, he promises to have those relationships last. That they will become eternal relationships with him, therefore we will see them again in eternity in heaven with him. That's what he's saying here to invest in that. And again, here's another example of why I know that, that that's important, that this, this longing for us to have relationships that are going to last beyond the grave, why this is important to us. Because let's say you are in a situation where, where maybe somebody you love becomes extremely sick. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your sibling. Maybe it's your children. Somebody you love deeply. Picture who that is. And if they, they become, you know, terminal, they have some illness, and their only chance of survival is for them to receive maybe one medication or maybe receive a particular surgery. But you have to give up your entire wealth, everything that you own, all your possessions, to save their life. Would you do it? You'd do it. If you really love the person, you'd do it. If you don't love them, you won't. I'd give it all up in a heartbeat to save my kids, to save my wife, you know, save the very people that I love. Which goes to show you that what you value more than finances, is people. It's friendships, it's family, it's relationships. What Jesus is showing us, though, is that, yes, we may want that, but there is an inconsistency that happens in our day-to-day lives. What we tend to do is we tend to reverse that. We tend to really invest more in our finances, value finances more than we value our friendships and our people. We follow our checkbook. We can follow where that goes in a lot of ways. And Jesus is saying, hey, wait a minute, just, just take a look at that and let's, take, let's value the friendships more than the, the, the um, actual, um, more than our finances, right? Let's, let's invest in building eternal relationships, relationships that will last, leading people to him. And he says we reverse it. In fact, he says we, what we do is we sometimes um, worship um, God, or worship our wealth instead of worshiping God. This is what he says in verse 13. We worship, and we end up worshiping our wealth more than God. Verse 13 states, no servant can serve two masters since he either will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money, meaning there's only room for one king in your life. You either worship Jesus or you worship your wealth, but you cannot worship both. Okay, so which do you worship? Do you worship Jesus or do you worship your wealth? Do you worship Jesus or do you worship your money? Some of the ways that, that we tend to worship our wealth is, is some of us, you know, we, we tend to worship wealth when it comes to, we, we feel like it's going to give us significance, it's going to give us status, it's going to maybe give us a, a sense of feeling accomplished in life. You know, it allows it can allow us to be able to live in certain neighborhoods, drive certain, certain cars, or eat in better restaurants, or wear designer clothing, and it makes us feel significant, it makes us feel like we've accomplished something in life. Some of us worship wealth because of significance. Some of us worship wealth because of comfort. We think it's going to bring us comfort. We think it can give us a comfortable life, an easy life, you know, a hammock on the beach life where we don't have to worry about, you know, any, you know, having to worry about meeting our bills. You know, we think we can just sit back, you know, relax and, you know, and just kind of enjoy nice, you know, nice life, you know, enjoy some nice vacations. 
You may be sipping on a drink with an umbrella in it while listening to some Jack Johnson and Bob Marley. Comfortable, easy, nice, relaxing life. Some of us worship wealth because we think it's going to give us security. Now, if I get sick, if my kids get sick, people I love get sick, it's going to give me better health care. If inflation hits like it is, is now, right? Well, then I'm not going to have to worry as much about, you know, cutting out some of my driving to be able to save some gas price on, on some, you know, gas money, gas prices, or, or cutting out on some groceries, maybe switching from, from eating, you know, organic food to generic food now, uh, you know, and, and just to be able to cut back on expenses, save some, some, you know, grocery money. Or if we get fired from our jobs like this manager, then, you know, we want to have built up a, a, a big enough security blanket so that we don't have to, have to worry about a time like this, like this man. See, these are, the, these are the three primary ways that we tend to worship our wealth. It has to do with significance, comfort, and security. Well, Jesus is saying, no, no, wait a minute. Your wealth is going to eventually fail you. He's teaching us that our wealth, our money can be a great resource, but it makes for a terrible God because eventually it will fail us. Okay, it, it'll fail. Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't a scrooge on our wealth. Right, he, gives us, he gives us wealth sometimes to bless us as well. So, you know, he's okay with us sometimes using the wealth that he's given us to bless us and our, bless our family, you know, to, to be able to buy a nice house, nice car, to be able to buy, you know, some nice clothes or to take some nice vacation. He doesn't have a problem with that. He doesn't even have a problem with us sometimes using our wealth um, to, to being, being wise with our wealth and saving up an oh-no fund, you know, in case there is hardships to come, like Joseph did when he was, you know, saving grain and saving stuff for the famine that was going to take place in Egypt. That was an oh-no time. Okay? The Lord isn't against it. Jesus doesn't have an issue with any of that. What he has an issue with is when we rely on our wealth to give us greater significance, comfort, and security than God. That's what he has an issue with. He also has an issue with, with, with us being greedy because those things can actually lead to us being greedy with our wealth because what happens is we'll start to hold on to our wealth hoping that we can achieve that, that significance, comfort, and security that we want instead of being generous with our wealth like Jesus wants. Okay? Jesus wants us to be generous with our wealth. Okay? But we sometimes tend to worship our wealth. So we need to make the decision. We've got to decide. Which is it that we're going to worship? Are we going to worship Jesus or are we going to worship our wealth? Are we going to worship Jesus or are we going to worship our money? Are we going to be good stewards who are investing in his eternal kingdom, investing in building eternal relationships, leading other people to him, investing in building his kingdom? Okay? Or are we going to you know, use the wealth for ourselves. Jesus wants us to be good stewards, invest in eternal things to build his eternal kingdom. And I'll give you just two quick examples as to how we can do that practically. All right, one of the ways we can live this out practically is first use your money to help meet people's needs. Don't just use your money to meet your own needs. The Lord gives that to you. Yeah, meet your own needs, but, but also to meet the needs of other people. You know, skeptics are, are way more open to receiving our generosity before they are open to receiving our beliefs. Okay, when you are, are you know, caring for skeptics, when you, when you maybe you know, bring a meal to, to them after they've had surgery or you bring gifts to them after they have a baby or maybe go out for coffee with them when they're struggling emotionally or maybe help to pay their bills when they're hurting financially, you know what that does? It, it confuses them. It causes them to, to say, wait, well, why, why do you care so much? Why are you doing this? Well, because I care about you. I'm doing this because I care about you because Jesus cares about you. See, I'm just the steward that Jesus has sent to show you that he loves you and he cares about you. He sees your need, he hears your need, and, and he sent me to let you know that he cares about your need. 
It's generosity that can open the doors for people to hear and be receptive to receiving our beliefs and our faith in Christ. Winterfest is an example of this. You know, Winterfest is about us trying to to do what we can to meet a need in our city. You know, all the net proceeds that we're going to raise at Winterfest are going to go towards helping people in our city who are hurting, still hurting because of Hurricane Ian and even now because of Hurricane Nicole. We want people in our city to know that we care about them and then our hope is that that hopes, you know, helps to soften their heart a bit, opens up their heart to accept the invitation to come to our Christmas Eve service where they can hear the good news of the gospel proclaimed. Now, you can learn more about Winterfest at our next step table or even at our website, but the point is, is if you value people, then give some of your money to investing in people, okay? Just like Jesus wants. The second thing we can do is use your money to build eternal friendships, eternal relationships. Use your money to help build eternal friendships, eternal relationships in Jesus. This is one of the reasons why I think you should give to the local church and why I personally give, my wife and I, we personally give to the local church. Like I said, if that's a problem for you, go give give to another local church. But this is one of the reasons why we should give to the local church. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 28, he says that um, he commissions the local church with the purpose and the responsibility to build eternal relationships. And so we should give to the local church because the local church is the primary way that Jesus is building eternal relations, the primary way that he's building his eternal kingdom. And so that means that Jesus is building eternal relationships. He's building his eternal kingdom through this local church. So if you have given financially to City Awakening in the past year, I want you to know that your financial stewardship The giving of your financial resource has been a financial investment, eternal investment that has allowed us to baptize eight people, commission four sets of parents, welcome 20 new members into our church. We started a new small group. We have 80 people placed in small groups, and we have 72 people generously serving on a ministry team in our church. We have over 106 people giving generously, giving financially to our church. 25 of them are new givers as of this year, which is evidence of them growing in their faith and in their love in Jesus and their love for this church, growing even in generosity. You don't give to a church unless you actually have the Lord working in your heart and you love the church and you love the mission, the work that the Lord is doing in the church. This is an example, 25 new first-time givers in our church. That is evidence of the grace of Jesus working. You can praise that, yeah, in their hearts. We've also given to needs outside our church, having provided an entire pallet of food to Second Harvest Food Bank. By the end of the year, we will have given $4,500 to help start new churches, and we will have given $9,000 towards local and global outreach. We've also utilized our digital platforms to spread the message of Jesus with our sermons reaching 700 views on BoxCast, 1,500 views on YouTube, and 1,000 podcast downloads. Our digital platforms have allowed us to spread the gospel message to several thousand people in 41 states and over six different countries. Some of those digital people have become real people who are actually sitting in these seats today. City, okay, can you praise God for this? The reason I am sharing this with you is because I want you to realize that your financial stewardship to this church isn't just reaching people in the church, it's also reaching people outside the church. I want you to see that Jesus is still building eternal relationships, he's still building his kingdom 
in and through this church, in and through your financial stewardship. And we want it to continue in 2023. See, in 2023, we're calling that deeply rooted. Why? Because it's our year of theology. We're going to focus on, on growing our church in theology. Okay, we're going to focus on growing existing eternal relationships within this church deeper in theology. Now, we want to grow, yes, new. We're not going to stop doing that. We still want to grow new eternal relationships, but we're also going to focus on developing the existing eternal relationships that exist in this church. So one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to focus on, starting in January, we're going to focus on going through the entire book of Romans next year. That's going to be one of our primary focuses next year because the book of Romans is one of the books in the Bible that is, is rich in theology, we're going to take momentary breaks throughout it to be able to address some deep theological questions that you may have that you want, want us to address. We will address. I told you, we're not going to hide from We will address those things. Questions like, you know, why does God allow suffering and evil to exist? Or if God's all-knowing, why would he have created somebody that he knew was going to go to hell? If God's all-knowing, then do we really have free will? Or is it predestination? Is it fatalism? So we're going to address all these kinds of deep theological questions and more in 2023. Deeply rooted our year of theology. Okay? You can choose to give somewhere else if you want to. And I encourage you to if you're a skeptic. I want you to do that. Give somewhere else. But if you give to this church, then you can know that your money, your wealth, and your financial stewardship, ours, is going towards meeting needs of the people in our city and building new and developing existing eternal relationships with Jesus. It is going towards valuing stewardship over ownership, valuing the eternal over the temporal, and valuing friendships over finances. So let's have the worship team come on up. And this is the big idea of the message. Our generosity, okay, it entails using your wealth beyond yourself. You cannot be a greedy, generous person. The greatest example we have of generosity is Jesus Christ. The primary message of the Bible is that Jesus is a generous giver of grace. He's a generous giver of salvation. Jesus is the eternal friend who came not only giving up his wealth for us, he gave up his entire life for us when he died for our sins on the cross. He did that so that we can have an eternal friendship in heaven with him. The cross proves that Jesus values Friends over finances, that he values people over personal profit. And his resurrection proves that his eternal kingdom will never fail, like all the other empires in history. His empire will never fail. And so you choose to worship Jesus, or you choose to worship your wealth. Will you choose to invest in building his eternal kingdom, or you choose to invest in building your own personal temporary sandcastle kingdom? We choose to value stewardship over ownership, the, the eternal over the temporary, finances or, or uh, friends over finances. Will you choose to worship your wealth or will you worship Jesus with your wealth? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your generosity of grace and salvation that you've given to us. May we respond to that with a yes and amen to you, receiving salvation, believing in who you are and what you've done, that you are our Lord, that you are our Savior, who lived, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. And may you shape and change our hearts to produce a generous people 
who would be generous not only within our own households, but generous in our church, generous through our church, and generous in our city. Lord, would you help the skeptic in the room to even realize that the local church can do so much greater together when we bind our generosity together for people here in the church and people in our city and people globally than a single skeptic can do on their own individually. We can be cynics and critics of the church or we can actually be a part of the church and help to transform the church and to use the resources you've given us to beautify the church and beautify our city, this so-called city beautiful. God has some issues in it. Lord, help us to truly make it a city beautiful by your name and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship Jesus.